The brain is in dynamic dialogue with the environment, and we've even discovered that new neurons are born over the course of the lifespan. We really require this plasticity in order to be who we are. Welcome to Purposeful Lab, a Maja Center podcast. I'm Katherine Hadro with Dr. Dan Keebler, and we have a special two-parter finale for you today. Really exciting interview with Dr. Sophia Carosa. You might remember her from uh, last season as well, but it was great to speak with her, and we had to break this up into two parts. Yeah, there was so much uh, to talk about. Uh, we, we we broke it up into one. The first, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, brain evolution, and we've been talking about human evolution. We want to focus on to the evolution of the human brain. What changes do you see, and so forth. Um, and then in the second part, we'll talk a little bit more about her research, um, which is really fascinating about the developmental plasticity and the effects of early life um, trauma on the, on the brain. So just as a refresher about her bio, Dr. Sophia Croza is a Catholic neuroscientist, again, speaking about the brain and evolution of the brain. She earned a degree both in neuroscience and theology at the University of Notre Dame, where she graduated as valedictorian. So fascinating, um, you know there and kind of perfect for our purposes and hearing her insights. She completed her doctorate in cognition and brain sciences at the University of Cambridge in England, where she researched the impact of early adversity on brain development. Again, we'll be getting into that with her. But now she's a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard Medical School, where she applies artificial intelligence to the study of child brain development. So with that, let's get to it. Here's part one of our interview with Dr. Sophia Carosa. Sophia, welcome back to Purposeful Lab. This is the first chance I've had to meet you. Dan obviously got to sit down with you at the Society of Catholic Scientists. Yeah, that was great. And ever since we did that interview, uh, Catherine's been itching to have you on set so she can talk to you um, in person. So it was great to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really great to be here. So you're a neuroscientist. Can you just remind our listeners what is neuroscience and, and what drew you into that field? Sure. So neuroscience is a really exciting, rapidly developing field. It's somewhat new in biological departments because it's a synthesis of previously existing disciplines. So neuroscience, in other words, is a new combination of things like biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, and even psychology and philosophy. So it's an interdisciplinary field, but the overarching aim is to make sense of human behavior in by taking an approach that examines the biology and the function of our brain. So within that field, there are numerous angles that you can take. I'm a developmental neuroscientist, so I look at how the brain forms over the course of the lifespan, in particular the structure and function of the brain in childhood. But there are countless subspecialties, so it's a, it's a broad field. So you have an interdisciplinary background as well. Do you think that helps you as a, a neuroscience uh, scientist, given the the wide range of fields that pour into that from computational to cognitive? I think it does. So my background is with philosophy and theology as well. And I think that's an incomparable aid because in neuroscience, we directly approach realities that are irreducibly human, what it means to think, what it means to be Um, to act in an ethical or good behavior, what it means to have health. Um, And these are questions that, sure, biology plays a role, but ultimately are not biological questions. And so if we're going to be studying them and doing justice to them, we need to be borrowing concepts and arguments and claims from other disciplines. 
whether or not we do that explicitly, we do it implicitly all the time. And so I think my interdisciplinary background helps me make better assumptions than many of my colleagues. Yeah. So it's a, it's a big help. Yeah, no, I can see that. And, um, you know, so, uh, what we've been doing this season, um, on our, our podcast is looking at sort of biological evolution and what, uh, you know, the science of biological evolution can, um, uh, what light it can shed on the human person, right? And as you point out, we won't, we won't expect it to explain everything about the human person. But um, so, how does you know biological evolution, particularly, um, uh, uh, impact our understanding of the brain? How does it help us understand the the human brain? What uh, immeasurably, yeah. it's incredible. There's a saying of uh, Theodosius Dobzhansky that I'm a big fan of that nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution and. Um, he was actually in that essay arguing for a theistic evolution, it's sometimes called. So he's not saying that evolution explains everything, but rather that it's an essential ingredient to include in the picture if we're going to make sense of the facts in front of our eyes. And I really think nothing in neuroscience makes sense except in light of evolution. Um, there are just so many structures within our brain that we've inherited uh, from our evolutionary ancestors and that don't make sense unless you consider our origin over time through evolution. So things like um, vestigial organs that were involved in chemosensation um, back in, you know, bacterial times and um, or elements of our brain structure that have homologs and other species that um, that play similar roles and have similar structures. And so, you know, either one of the things that uh, Dobzhansky says in this article is that Either God intentionally placed all of these signs in our reality to trick us, or we came to be through through evolution. And um, yeah, so I think it makes sense um, of how the brain is organized and shaped and how it functions and our similarity to so many other creatures on this earth. So what are some like similarities you would say like that we have say, just, just with other primates that really affect like our human behavior. And if you had to say these two things or three things about the structure of the brain, the organization of the brain, yeah. uh, are clearly, um, you know, really can only be thought of through this evolutionary connection. And that actually helps us do better neuroscience. So I guess one of the primary ways we see it is in development. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a developmentalist. Yeah. But really, you see when you study uh, embryology and early brain development that the same factors, the same genetic uh, gradients and the same mo molecules guide the formation of neuronal networks and connections in, um, in monkeys as they do in humans. And because of that, we can look at which uh, genes are responsible for guiding the formation of those networks in monkeys and then understand, for example, in the human brain, some neurodevelopmental disorders or genetic conditions where the brain forms differently because those genes are missing. And so by studying monkeys, we can then shed light on, okay, well, what drives healthy brain development? How can we foster this for all people? But even, you know, beyond development throughout the whole brain, just the, the way that regions interact with one another in guiding human behavior is very similar to how they interact in guiding primate behavior. So um, the role of dopamine in your reward system for motivating behavior or um, the role of the cerebellum in coordinating motor actions, it's all the same in a sense between us and, and other primates. But to that point, what makes the human brain unique mm. from other animals? Yes, numerous factors. So there's not a single sort of 
a guiding line that explains all of the difference. One of the most commonly invoked points of departure from other species is our expanded neocortex. So the neocortex is the new cortex etymologically, but it's the outside of the brain, the very um, periphery of the brain. And it's responsible or plays a part in a lot of our higher order thinking and decision making processes. And compared to other primates, we have a much larger neocortex. It's in the end, it's actually disproportionately larger, even though our brain as a whole is larger. The neocortex is much larger than it is in other animals. And for it to fit into our brain, it actually has to be really folded. So that's why the brain looks wrinkled. It's much more wrinkled in humans than other species because the surface area is so big that just like you would crumple up a a ball of aluminum foil to make it fit into a smaller uh, space, the same happens with our brain. And it's wrinkled so that it can... um, it can fit into our skull. So that's one big difference. But then there's certain areas of the brain that have matured, evolved, or taken on new functions compared to what they do in other primate species. And you see this particularly in regions like those responsible for language. Those are different in humans, as we would expect, because our communication patterns are so different from those of other primates. Um, then I'd also say more broadly, there's a lot of repurposing that happens within the brain where Maybe the region involved looks like it does in other species, but its patterns of connectivity have shifted so that it can play a different role in behavior. So you see this uh, in part in um, regions involved in motivated and goal-directed behavior, that they use similar neurotransmitters, but the way that they respond to stimuli is different. Their connections to the prefrontal cortex are different, and so this permits or um, goes along with shifts in our behavior. Yeah. This repurposing of things is something you see throughout evolution. And yes. It's not just in the brain, but you see molecules that are used for one purpose and then get adapted for mm. new ones that, um, uh, over time. So this is something that, uh, but in the brain, part of it is, is it because of the plasticity that the brain has when it's developing to take on different roles? So yes. um, maybe you could just speak to, to that for a listener. Sure. Sure. So, I mean, I used to joke that the only organ that interests me in the whole body is the brain and I've learned more amazing things about other organs, so I probably wouldn't say that now. But, um, but it really does precisely because, you know, you compare it to the liver and the brain changes so much in response to its experiences and across species. It's, it's beautiful. It's so moving to me every time I think about it. But yeah, so the brain is, uh, particularly in the human species, across the lifespan, really is in dynamic dialogue with the environment. It's not set in stone. And we've even discovered that new neurons are born over the course of the lifespan and they're integrated into circuits in new ways and structural connections are removed or added. And while this happens most dramatically in childhood, there's this explosive development that happens during infancy. It really continues throughout the whole lifespan. If your brain loses its capacity to change, you wouldn't be able to form any new memories. You know, we really require this plasticity in order to be who we are. But it is heightened, as you noted. It's heightened in the human species compared to other species. And one of the ways you see this most clearly is the dependence of a neonate, of a new, newly born infant, on his or her mother. That, you know, you compare it to a horse where the colt's already running around like five hours after birth, right? Whereas with the human, you know, it's years. Sometimes they don't leave the home till they're 30. You know, there's <laughs> nothing wrong It's getting that. higher and higher now. <laughs> Right. There's this remarkable dependence. And because we're born with brains that are so immature, 
our interpersonal relationships play a really big part in forming the structure and the function of our nervous system. And this enables us to attain a level of complexity and sophistication in our biology that would be uh, impossible or nearly impossible were the brain to develop merely in the womb. Hmm. That's fascinating to know. We always maintain that ability, would you say, throughout our life to change our habits, to repair our brain and what have you. Interesting to hear you talk about how um, the brain is obviously affected by the environment. And as we're talking about this season, this episode in particular of evolution, I understand there's, you know, quite the scientific debate uh, weighing different factors that uh, could have led to why the human brain evolved the way that it did. So I thought it would be helpful if you could walk us through some of those different theories and then we can discuss, you know, the factors that you find the most convincing, if that sounds good. So can you first talk us through this theory that the brain evolved the way that it did because of humans living in social groups? Um, And I believe this is known as the social brain hypothesis. Yes. Yeah. Spearheaded by uh, Robin Dunbar, among others. And they take the line that the expanded neocortex that I was mentioning earlier in particular, but features of the human brain in general, have emerged because of the demands of living in complex social groups. So if you consider the, the pattern and the landscape of human relationships, it's remarkably denser and more diverse than in other species. We have complex social hierarchies and different kinds of relationships between kin and friends and lovers and family members. Um, And the demands of certain cognitive and social processes like um, perspective taking and empathy and conflict negotiation, we're all familiar with how cognitively taxing these kinds of things can be. And so the theory goes that um, these demands selected for uh, organisms with brains that were larger and able to carry out more complex computations socially, um, and so gradually shifted the species towards having a a larger brain. And of course, you could understand this to be a bidirectional relationship, because then having a larger brain would enable you under this perspective to have more complex cognitive ability. And so it's a sort of virtuous self-reinforcing cycle there. So there's also a theory involving environmental stress and and climate change, which is something we've discussed um, earlier on in the season. But when it comes to the brain, what's that specific theory? Sure. So there are a collection of environmental stressors or factors that are invoked as drivers of evolutionary change in the brain, and particularly moments in history when, um, I'm not sure if you've discussed the idea of punctuated equilibrium, but there are these long periods of stasis and then rapid periods of change, often triggered by environmental events. And so these uh, sort of ecological or contextual factors are cited as um, moments in which this sort of shift, a rapid, almost stepwise change in the brain would have happened. And so factors to consider would include like Uh, glacial cycles or the expansion of human beings beyond the savannah in Africa to encounter new ecological contexts, anything that would rapidly present a new set of challenges that could exert a selective pressure or new animals and plants to um, consume or to be killed by. (laughs) And um, and these are all factors that, again, can, can trigger a a shift in the patterns of survival and reproduction that could in turn 
have an impact on the brain. It's interesting because even roughly, you know, five million years ago to the present in Africa, you know, you have these bigger climate changes and the, the fluctuations, shifts, you know, fluctuations yeah. that have gotten bigger and bigger over time. But even if you just, you know, and then as, as hominids leave Africa, as you point, there's all these different environments they're going to encounter. It's not just a one-way street. Some hominids are coming back. Yeah. And so, you, and even in Africa itself, you have all these different local climates that, that they're all sort of adapting to, which is going to put pressure on not only that, but it, it's interesting how it connects with like the social thing too. Because if you get to a new environment, then you have to have new social structures or new ways of surviving in this new environment. So there, it, it's hard to pull one out without, Absolutely. you pick one up and everything else is connected right. to it in some way, yeah. shape or form. Yeah. There's also a theory I'm interested in this one involving the change of how humans cooked and just the aspect of nutrition and what impact did that have on the brain? So this is an important theory because the brain is, this is a little known fact, the most metabolically expensive element of your body. It takes about 20% of your energetic expenditure um, at the least to maintain your cognitive So brain food is a real... It is a real thing. thing. Okay, yes. okay. You should I'll, eat I'll your when advice you're taking on what? exams. Okay. Okay. Yes, definitely. And it can only run on glucose, unlike most of the rest of the body. Yes, so it needs carbohydrates. And cooking releases, uh, it makes energy contained within food more biologically available. So it breaks down things that the human digestive system, even with the help of our microbiome, we wouldn't be able to extract the calories we need from that food without cooking it. And so as humans began using fire for not just protection and light and warmth, but also cooking their food, this likely permitted the expansion of the brain because it could demand greater metabolic resources without killing the human. So, um, so this is a big element of the, the expansion of the brain. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you've, you've talked about some factors driving the increase in the brain, but there's, there's a cost there, as you point out. So what, what are the things that sort of limit? You know, people say, well, why does the brain just keep getting bigger? Right. Yeah. Bigger is not necessarily better. It's true. It's true. And the correlations between size and cognitive ability are not as strong as people tend to think. So um, one of the most important ones, well, we mentioned the metabolic expense of it. So if you can't eat enough to support that brain, it's not going to help you live. Another really important one is actually the size of the birth canal. And so if um, the human skull increases beyond its current proportion, the rate of maternal death um, at, the, at birth of the child would increase exponentially. So there's a really hard limit there to the size of of course, there couldn't be coordinated evolution whereby the female anatomy would change along with the brain. So that's one, one question. Um, and then finally, I'd say as sort of someone who's a little bit more educated in the cognitive neuroscience tradition, is that information processing needs to be efficient in the brain. And one of the places where um, that tends to drop off most rapidly is in the need to transmit information across a long distance. Because even though we have myelinated axons, which we can get into if you want, that transmit these action potentials very rapidly, um, it still is quite expensive to do so. And it's easier to have efficient information processing when things are happening in a local context. So as the brain gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it's harder to carry out those computations that are necessary for behavior. Just in real time, it's going to yeah. slow down. Even, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. That makes sense. Finally, there's this next theory that you say is the key to your understanding. And that's the theory that language and culture um, they are the reason the human brain evolved as it did. Can you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. I am I'm partial to this one while acknowledging the important contributions of all the other elements that we've 
covered in our conversation today. The idea that our shared knowledge transmitted not just interpersonally, cross-sectionally in one generation, but across generations has shaped our biology as well as our psychology and our philosophy and everything else we associate with with culture. And to me, this is um, compelling and uh, plausible because if you consider the way that our patterns of communication and encounter with one another differ from other species, there's a dramatic increase in complexity um, that in turn has cascading effects on everything else that we do. So because of our capacity to communicate with one another in, um, in complex social arrangements and have coordinated knowledge and action, look at how we've transformed the environment. Look at how we've changed our understanding of our social roles. It's, um, it's an, an element that doesn't remain contained within itself, but touches everything about our life, our capacity for language and culture. And so I think it's uh, an important explanatory key to unlock some of the questions of how it is that we've changed biologically and cognitively over time. Yeah. So, so how, you know, you have this sort of two-way causation then, right, with culture. So like, give an example maybe of, of that where, where humans shape culture and then that shapes human, you know, Definitely. behavior, for example, or evolution. Yeah. 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 So you could think about, um, for example, innovations in uh, in agriculture and the shift from being more of a hunter-gatherer society to one with stable, almost urban life eventually, right? The formation of the polis of the city. Now that presupposes a capacity for complex cognitive ability and information processing and all these things that, have we, as we've said, require a larger brain. But in turn, then this dense life together in community and the stability of a community, enabling it to um, diversify those social roles that people play. So some could really carry out work of uh, developing and transmitting information over time, then returns incredible dividends for, um, for the brain and for how we're able to learn, educate one another, and then in turn increase um, biologically our, our innate human abilities. Mm-hmm. And you said, you know, this theory about how language and culture impacted the evolution of the brain is unique to humans. Can you speak to that? And what do you think that reveals about the design of humans? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So we, of course, do see communication in other species, sometimes in very complex ways, like whales. I won't go down that road, but it's really amazing how they communicate with one another. So that in itself is not unique to us. But If you look at the element of shared knowledge and transmission of that knowledge over time in in human community and the capacity for coordinated action, I mean, the scale and the breadth of it is just dramatically different in the human species than than in any other. And to me, it's beautiful because it reflects, in a sense, the organization of human life as fundamentally an interdependent one. That none of us is human on our own. We didn't come to be that way and we don't flourish that way. That it all of our life and what's most human about it, most meaningful about it, presupposes an embeddedness in relationship and not just with your family, but with a community and, and the human race as a whole. And I think our highest philosophical and theological traditions all point to this as being an essential truth of human life. So it's beautiful to see how it played likely a very important formative causal role, even on the level of our biology. Yeah, it, it's interesting that, you know, when it seems like when modern humans come 
to be. There's other hominid forms on the planet, but yes. they are able, you know, somehow overtake them or displace them. Partly maybe because they're living in a better, you know, a, a better community or something. That been, and that's you know, with, with language and, and to be able to interact with people and understand their social dynamics in a way that other hominids, it, it's just lost on them in a sense. Right? Um, but what, what regions of the brain um, do, are, are key for driving that in terms of that language and, that, and so forth? Just yeah. To, so we've moved in neuroscience from a strictly localizationist approach where we specify um, certain regions as responsible for particular functions to more of a network approach and coordinated activity between brain regions. So there are complex networks involved in um, language and then in coordinated action with others. So in language, I mean, I'm sure you've, you've heard of Broca's area, which is involved in the production of language, Wernicke's area, which is involved in understanding receptive language, um, but then a whole host of associated regions that are involved in um, the more emotional connections, the connections to memory, the connections to higher order judgments. All of these get recruited in uh, dyadic conversations with other people. And then this whole network that are involved in, um, the, it's called the social brain, not in the way that we talked about it with evolution, but the social brain, because it um, is implicated in and supports those cognitive processes by which we understand the intentions of other people. We um, have a theory of mind or sort of an experience almost of the inner life of the other person um, by which we negotiate conflict. So these are some of the networks that I would see are particularly implicated in this cultural and communicative drive of um, the change of the human brain. So you say that there'd be more of uh, changes in the connections rather yes. than that's like, the, oh, this area gets bigger and suddenly I can speak. But you know, yeah. it's like the connections between these areas get reinforced or new connections are, are, are there. Um, and that's essential for this emergence property of the, of, of the brain, which is, seems analogous to this emergent property of human culture, right? It's mm -hmm. not one person. It's, it's this interaction between a lot of different uh, relationships yeah, all yeah. the way down. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What would you say this means about the importance of relationships and having, I guess, a healthy social life when it comes to our well-being, that knowing this about the brain and the way it's evolved? Mm -hmm. Yes, we did not evolve as individuals. And so we can't expect ourselves suddenly to become individuals now, like stripped of our evolutionary inheritance, I think. Our current Western milieu with its heavy emphasis on individualism is an evolutionary anomaly. And I think it has serious implications for the cost that social isolation has on us that none of us develop in the first place or maintain an awareness of reality or an awareness of ourselves without the minds and brains of others. And we see this most poignantly in the mother infant bond, but it's true of all of us. And so I think. This evolutionary perspective on the brain is a real cause for acceptance of our interpersonal dependence, compassion on others because we're made to live in community and that can be challenging. But the answer is not to cut and run and just go at it alone, um, but rather to really invest in our structures in community, whether that's the family or um, on a broader social level, with the awareness that uh, my flourishing is not something that takes a place apart from the community in which I'm embedded. Mm. This is probably a whole other topic area, but as you're talking about, you know, the harm of being isolated and the impact that has on us, too, I'm just thinking of 
what is the impact of social media today? Because we say that we're more connected and yet we're separated. We're communicating through a screen, very different than being face-to-face with someone. Again, getting to meet you in person versus our Zoom communications. Um, But to that point, how is the brain continuing to evolve today? Is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it it is, again, anomalous, this what's happening in our generation in terms of the mode of communication that we have with others. And this is not to say that information technology and social media are are bad by any stretch of the imagination, but when they replace stimuli that because of evolution or because of, you know, this is how God made us, whatever your explanation is, our our bodies are not expecting most of our communication to happen through a screen. And it has an impact on you when that is the case. And so it's certainly a strong driver of the crisis of isolation and the attendant mental illness that's afflicting our generation. So the brain, of course, you know, anytime there's differential survival and reproduction, there will be evolution. And so so the brain is not set in stone, but rather a, a continual dynamic equilibrium. And there are some studies led by a group at UChicago, several others throughout the world that have identified Genes that are implicated in the development and regulation of the brain that seem to be changing in their frequency over time right now um, in a manner more consistent with evolution than with mere random mutation. So there does seem to be change that's happening now. Now, of course, we need to wait for a broader timescale to really observe what the implications of these changes are. And it's not solely because of the technologies that we've developed. It's also due to differences in health and the climate and social dynamics. Um, but I definitely think that it's an essential factor to consider. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You talk about like changes in the, the genetic framework for the for, for the brain development, but the brain obviously is uh, goes beyond the genetics because yes. you know the genetics sort of give it a broad potential of how the brain can wire up. But you know um, the way it wires up, as you point out, is has a lot to do with the experience and the plasticity um, that that it has. So in in sort of in in your work, you've looked at particularly like early development and the way um, early development affects um, the brain. What's one of the things you mentioned before, it's sort of unique to humans, this long period of brain development outside the womb, right? Um, Which is, you know, this uh, makes humans more vulnerable in a sense to other people, right? As opposed to, like you said, a deer that just stands up and can, it's still vulnerable to some extent, but not nearly as much as a a newborn. So, um, what is, do you think that tells us anything? You know, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the science is a science, but if you sort of reflect on that, just theologically or philosophically, what is, does that tell you anything about, you know, the, the, the risk of being human? <laughs> yeah, it's a bad strategy. If you look at it purely from the standpoint of um, ability to fight off predators or what have you. Um, but yeah, I think it, what it reveals to me is that, as I was saying before, we come into this world not as individuals, but embedded in a relationship and that for us to become who we were meant to be, it's not a question of exerting our will on the world, but of receiving from another, really receiving. And you see in the the mother-infant relationship that the mother and her gaze and her touch and her laughter serve as a scaffold for the infant first to come to awareness of himself or herself as, as someone separate from the mother, and then to become aware of the world and to take the risk of venturing out into that world, beginning to learn, to play, to experiment, um, and, and thus to be able to, to mature. So to me, it's remarkable, this vulnerability. And you see, of course, the, the risk 
and that that sort of more tragic side to it when children are deprived of the early relationships that they that they need and that they deserve. But it's not uh, a risk that is sort of um, merely a weakness to mitigate, but rather a, a weakness to embrace as the path to becoming who we are. The best of the human species comes through embrace of that vulnerability and receptivity to the other. Um, and to me, as a Christian, what I see in this is an image of the Holy Trinity, that scripture says we were made in the image and likeness of God. And we believe we have, it's been revealed to us that this God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, engaging in a mutual outpouring of love. And uh, we've made, been made in the image of that. And so we too find who we are in this dynamic of receiving and giving love unconditionally to another. And uh, to me, this is a theme that I never tire of reflecting on because the esteem and the incredible dignity that it confers on ordinary human relationships, that it's within the home in a relationship between a father or mother and his or her child, that, that the greatness of the human species is most visible, is remarkable to me. We've looked in, in previous episodes and seasons about how this order um, bubbles up, like you know, the order in the physics leads to the order in the, in the chemistry, and that opens up new possibilities. Then the order in the chemistry can interact in the metabolism that you have life, and that opens up new possibilities. And, uh, and it's sort of bubbling up from the bottom. But at the same time, when you, you open up these new possibilities with the brain, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's being shaped from top down as well. Right? Yeah. There's this bi-directional causality there. Um, does, does that, uh, how do you make sense of that in terms of what does it mean to be human, right? That, that we're not just bottom up, you know, stuff, but that, that we actually affect our own sort of evolutionary and our own cognitive processes in that way. And it's brain remarkable, health, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. And if I didn't have a sense of uh, of the purposefulness of the universe, that there is an end that's being directed by a creator, then it would be vertiginous, the responsibility that we have as free and conscious human beings to direct, in a sense, direct evolution, to direct the change of our biology, not to mention our responsibility for the rest of creation and other species as well, whom we can drive to extinction or, or bring back from extinction. So it's, uh, it is vertiginous, this responsibility. But I, it, to me, it makes a beautiful sense of what we see in development, which again is my area of specialty. We call it probabilistic epigenesis. What does that mean? Well, the fact that any individual human being doesn't emerge just deterministically as the product of information from her genes, but through this, again, dynamic dialogue between levels of organization of her being. So you have the physical and chemical interactions on the level of her genome. You have biological interactions within her body and her brain, but then you also have psychological experiences and then sociocultural ones. All of them in this mutual interaction over the course of time that shapes the emergence of the phenotype of the individual. And so it's, it's beautiful. It, it sheds light, again, on our, on our freedom, that there is not one path laid out for us because of our chemistry and our biology, but rather that we can participate in becoming who we were meant to be or becoming someone else. And so, again, our responsibility really emerges here. and um, and makes you reflect with uh, with wonder and a bit of fear at um, at what lies before us in human life, right? That it, it really it really is the greatest thing um, that that exists in the whole universe. Our possibility of participating in the creation of our own human life and the life of another. 
And that goes back to the idea of plasticity mm-hmm. that you mentioned, right? And our ability to rewire our brain through habits and, and what have you. How would you say the evolution of the human brain speaks to a purposeful universe? Yeah, it's, to me, very eminently compatible with uh, the idea of the directedness of creation of the universe as a whole. Now, evolution itself isn't going to tell you why all of these changes came about. It explains how they came about. And so you can, you can have, uh, which often happens in neuroscience, you can implicitly import a kind of physicalism or naturalism that says, well, if this is how it happened, then it must also be why it happened. And there's nothing really here but chemistry and physics all the way down and random events that have shaped the evolution of the human brain. Or you can look at the human brain and its beautiful complexity and magnificence and human freedom. And you could say, wow, like there, there is clearly someone out there who's directing all of this to bring us about over all of these millions of years, all of these millions of events of natural selection to create this, the human person. So to me, it's, it's the latter. It's an occasion to reflect with wonder at the intention that all of creation, in a sense, was prepared in advance for the human person to emerge, like the crown of creation. And, um, and this, doesn't, this doesn't make the rest of creation somehow less in dignity. But because of the continuity between the human species and the rest of creation, there's this deep sense of fraternity and responsibility that Pope Francis, among other religious and um, political leaders, have been calling us to um, with the rest of creation. And just generally, the, the way that this is manifest in the brain, to me, is something that always moves me with a new awareness of my own dignity and the own the gift of my being that I didn't create myself. I didn't plan my evolution. And, and yet look at what, what a beautiful nature was given to me. Yeah. It's interesting how a lot of, you say the, the things, the molecules, the cells that make up the brain that are going to be needed to make our brains are there millions, billions yeah. of years ago. And uh, they're sort of sitting there. And then at a certain point, their potential is realized in, in human being. And it's realized in a very open way, right? It's not, uh, a close, which is, I think, theologically, you think about it, that's the way God interacts with all of us. We have this openness, this freedom that we can be, abuse or we can flourish, and, and it's you know within a community, and it's uh, it, it's really um, you know what I think you, you're you're saying is at the heart of what why the brain is the most interesting. Yes. Work. <laughs> yeah. and I think anyone listening to you, Sophia can hear just your profound theological insights. And you graduated as valedictorian from the University of Notre Dame, and you studied neuroscience, but also theology. And I think that's a really intriguing combination that really um, comes forward in, in our interview with you. So I'm curious, has your research on the brain, as you've delved more into the neuroscience, has your research on the brain impacted your faith life and your understanding of God? Mm, yes. In countless ways, um, but I'll, I'll try to summarize. Thank you for this question, because it's, it's a gift for me to reflect on the unity of my life, that there's no part of it that's separate from this relationship that I have with the mystery with God. And in particular, I see this in my work. Uh, when I first fell in love with neuroscience and the study of the brain, it became for me a window into the desire of God for me, the incredible, again, beauty and complexity of the way that I was created. And that I was continually recreated every single day. I mean, 
the nervous system, it really is a miracle that any of us are here at all. The way that the precise coordination of so many molecules and events for so many years, for us to be upright and functional, let alone in such a beautiful life, right? And so for me, it's, it's evidence that I'm, you know, God is not a watchmaker that created us and then stepped back and lets it run on its own, but instead is intimately involved in, in every detail of my life and because he, he creates me again every single day, in a sense, every moment, every minute. So for me, it's, it's been a real occasion to reflect on his desire for me. But so too, to see one of the most consistent themes of my research as a neuroscientist is the more I discover about the brain, the more that I see that the mysteries of the Christian faith are made incarnate in human life in a way that's eminently reasonable and comprehensible. That in a sense, there really is this book of creation that is preaching the same message as that of the gospel, which is not to say that Revelation, Revelation didn't introduce something new. It did. But you see, like I said about the mystery of the Trinity, that you see a reflection of this in our relationships with each other. You see a reflection of um, the Lord's teachings about sin and redemption. Um, you see reflections of his teaching about uh, what it means to be a flourishing human being. And so for me, it's, I don't know, it's so beautiful that the deeper I go in the study of the brain, the more that I see the reasonableness of what I'm taught by the church and how consistent it is with my nature. And so really everything in life is, is given to us to discover who God is for us and, um, and to respond with, with the fullness of ourselves. And for me, one of the major elements of that has been the study of the brain. So I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful because it, it has so enriched my relationship with him. That's part one of our interview with Dr. Sophia Carosa. We'll be back next week for the finale of season three of Purposeful Lab, a Maja Center podcast to hear the rest of our conversation where we'll delve more into Dr. Sophia Carosa's research and again, the, how the brain is a relational organ. Right. And how the early childhood events can affect that and how um, you can, you know, through habit formation and so forth, change the structure of your brain and change your behavior. Absolutely. So make sure you're subscribed to Purposeful Lab on your favorite podcast platform and go to majacenter.com. We'll see you next week for the season finale. 